Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Has the cross made all the difference for you? Amen. It makes a difference where God calls us His friend. Isn't that good news this morning? Amen. Please, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. You're excited to be in Acts? Oh, John, what are you doing? I have no idea how that got in there. Not even sure what that is. I'm a, boy, I'm a, what a strange thing. Well, just a minute. Wait just a minute. What? Is it, oh, the wings. You know, I just... Uh, <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Now that your abs are out, you'll join in the Western Conference bandwagon, right? Cheer the wings all the way to the Stanley Cup. I know, that's hard. Boy, a lot of Wings fans in here. Shoot them, somebody said. <laughs> Quick, let's get to the book of Acts. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 18, Paul's third missionary journey. The year is 54 A.D., and this time, for the first time, for whatever reason, we may talk about this reason weeks from now, Paul leaves Antioch alone. He doesn't have a Barnabas or a Silas. He's leaving Antioch alone. Let's dive right in. I'm reading from Acts 18, beginning at verse 23. Oh, good heavens. I've been in Acts so long, my Acts is coming out of my Bible. <laughs> it could be a time to move on, Pastor. Um, Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, that's Antioch of Syria, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. These are places Paul had been to before on his past trips. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, that's pretty extraordinary, a Jew with the name of a Greek god, but there he is, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, you remember that? husband and wife team that Paul had met in Corinth and now brought with him or did bring with him to Ephesus on his way home to Antioch. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, heard Apollos, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, it's Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, 
we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. And so the first detailed stop, at least on Paul's third missionary journey, is Ephesus. And to kick things off in Ephesus, Luke gives us two separate but related stories. The first is about Apollos, and the second is about a group of Ephesians. Now what especially seems to connect these two stories is something called the baptism of John. That is, as Paul later describes in the second story, a baptism of repentance. And we see this baptism of John repentance mentioned in both back-to-back stories. Now, before we go any further into these stories, let me make one important announcement. I hope you are all ears here. Please hear me. This issue of baptism, and indeed these two stories before us, are a huge source of great and often heated debate among Christians, okay? We have before us, we're about to wander into a theological minefield, okay? And you should know this going in. So this morning, I'm going to give you my opinion, spirit-led, Lord willing, but it's one person's opinion on some of the controversial aspects of this text. You should know there are many other Good opinions out there, including, no doubt, in this very room today. And you know what? That's okay. Everybody take a big breath and just, oh. It's okay. Okay? If you agree with my opinion, or at least portions of it, great. But if not, I'm sure we can find another church for you to go to. Oh, no, wait. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's good to laugh over that sometimes, though. We can become so uptight. As important as baptism is, it is not an essential for salvation. Let me say that again. Baptism is important, but it is not an essential for salvation. Now, already... I've stumbled onto one of those areas of disagreement. Didn't take too long, did it? Our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ, for example, they teach that baptism is an essential for salvation. To pick on a Protestant church, I understand the Church of Christ teaches the same, even teaching that their church specifically must do the baptizing. But the dominant Protestant opinion, at least on this issue, and my opinion as well, is that baptism is not an essential for salvation. Now, to be sure, our belief shows itself in our actions, and I'd place baptism among those actions where our faith is on display for the benefit of community and witness to others. But I can't find, I cannot find anywhere in the Bible where baptism is listed or is shown as an additional requirement for salvation. 
And when we're not dealing with requirements for salvation, in my opinion, we're free and even encouraged in the Bible to agree to disagree on just how non-essentials to salvation work. And I put baptism on that list. You know, discussion and debate among Christians over non-essentials is a good thing, believe it or not, or at least it can be, so long as we don't fall into the temptation and let those debates divide us. And believe me, and I'm sure you know from your experience, if you've spent any time in any Christian community anywhere, the devil tempts us toward this type of division and factionalism along non-essential to salvation issues all the time. Don't go for that bait. I mean, so as we grapple with these non-essentials to salvation, we always need to have ringing in our ears the clear biblical call to unity. Unity in our, despite our, because of our diversity. I thought maybe there'd be one amen. Thank you, George. Remember, the Bible does not call us to uniformity. We are not called to believe and to do the exact same things when it comes to non-essentials of salvation. That'd be uniformity. Instead, the, the biblical call is a call to unity. Unity in our diversity over such things as non-essentials to salvation. So, in discussing non-essentials to salvation, we should always work hard to stay in unity and to treat each other in love. So this morning, as, as we kick around, as we debate, it's kind of a one-sided debate in our tradition today at least, you don't get to fire back, but as you kick around in your head, as you listen to me about what I feel are non-essentials to salvation, try to remember that you love me. <laughs> okay, and uh, even a wingstand. <laughs> and, and I'll try to remember that I love me too. No, wait, no, I'll try to remember that I love you too. Okay, is that a deal? All right. Now, I've suggested that what especially links the two stories before us together, the first about Apollos and the second about these Ephesians, is this baptism of John thing. Or baptism of repentance. So let's start there, shall we? What is this baptism of John? Well, first of all, the John here is John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist? He's the son of a priest who left the temple, withdrew from Jerusalem, went out into the desert because he was fed up with how his fellow priests, think Sadducees, were leading the people. And he was fed up with the resulting slide into disobedience of Israel. And so John the Baptist leaves. And he goes out into the Judean desert, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would. And John is there in the desert, and he calls the people, remember, to repent. He's the voice calling in the wilderness, in the desert. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Referring, of course, to Jesus and his impending ministry and work of atonement. John then would baptize those that heard that cry, heard that call, and repented. John would baptize them. That's why he was known as John the Baptist. Not John the Southern Baptist, but John the Baptist. Literally in the Greek, John the Baptizer, really. 
And that's why his baptism, the baptism of this man that went out and cried, repent, is called to often, or is called often the baptism of repentance. Now, what's repentance? One Hebrew word, a main Hebrew word for repentance is shuv. Say shuv. Shuv means to turn away from sin and to turn toward or enter into fellowship with God. That's shuv. Repentance. To turn away from sin and to enter into fellowship with God. One very well-known use, biblical use of that word shuv, see if it rings familiar in your ears, comes from Second Chronicles verse, or chapter 7, where God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from, shuv, If they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Shuv. The Greek word for repentance, used both in the story of John the Baptist and also here in our story in Acts, is metanoia. Say metanoia. You have spoken biblical Hebrew and Greek today in church this morning. Praise God. Amen? Now, in its verb form, metanoia, its verb form, repent, this word means to think differently about something or to have a change of mind. Peter uses this same word or Luke uses this same word in the story of Peter in Acts 2 at Pentecost. When Peter urges that eager crowd, remember, to repent and be baptized. You need to think differently about something, Peter says. You need to have a change of mind and be baptized. Metanoia. And so in Hebrew and in Greek, both, you put them together. Biblical repentance, then, involves changing your mind, turning away from sin, and turning toward fellowship with God. That's repentance. And then a baptism of repentance then is is that washing in water when that occurs. That that washing in water that symbolizes that change of mind, turning from sin and turning to God. Does that make sense? No one's storming out so far, so I'll continue. Now, make no mistake, right? Repentance to repent is a good and needed thing. Amen? I mean, given our sinful condition before God, we need to repent. We need to turn away from sin and turn toward obedience to God. But as necessary as repentance is, in both stories before, this, before us this morning, this baptism of John, this baptism of repentance alone is presented by Luke as somehow incomplete or insufficient, isn't it? Something's missing. In both stories, something's not quite right. In the first story, Apollos, boy, he knows the Scriptures. He's an accomplished speaker. What else is Apollos? He speaks with great fervor. And we're even told that Apollos teaches accurately about Jesus. This leads most scholars to conclude, therefore, that when we pick up the story of Apollos, day one when he shows up in Ephesus, he's a believer. 
He's a Jewish Christian because of Luke's description here. The only, however, slight pause in Luke's stream of praise, his glowing report on Apollos, is that little phrase, that little statement in there, did you catch it when we read it, that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. What Paul later tells us is the baptism of repentance. And so, presumably, we don't know for sure, but the context points to this conclusion. Presumably, that's why Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside to explain to Apollos about baptism in Jesus' name. And then in the next story, Paul shows up in Ephesus, runs into a group of about 12 Ephesians. And note, please note, that, that before these 12, about 12 Ephesians, before they even say one word, Luke refers to them as disciples. And before they even open their mouth, these 12, about 12 Ephesians, Paul acknowledges their belief. And I bring that up because... Whether or not this group of 12 are Christians, even before they're baptized in Jesus' name later in the story, whether or not they're Christians before that baptism in Jesus' name, that opinion is more evenly split among scholars, I'll just tell you. In my opinion, they are Christians right from the beginning. Among the reasons why is this one. I can't fathom, (coughs) for the life of me, why Luke and Paul would refer to pagans as disciples and believers. And the the scholars that I read that try to explain this to me, maybe I'm just not smart enough, but they seem to me like they're, they're standing on their heads or something, trying to explain that. In any event, whether believers or not, similar to Apollos, Luke indicates again, doesn't he, in that second story, that that something something is incomplete or missing. In the Ephesians, baptism of John, their baptism of repentance only. Do you notice that that, that conversation we have between Paul and the Ephesian disciples, it, it's pretty funny, isn't it? You imagine if you're Paul, Paul strolls into Ephesus, he finds these disciples, and he asks them, so, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, oh, uh, what's the Holy Spirit? That's a paraphrase. They said, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Can you see, can you just see Paul's eyes get about that big? And then look what Paul asks, perhaps a bit surprised, befuddled. What baptism did you receive? Paul asks. Interesting question, because Paul immediately suspects, doesn't he, that if these fine Ephesians have no clue about the Holy Spirit, they... They must have been baptized in in, in a name other than Jesus. He might even be guessing at this point that it's the baptism of John, which was a common and popular baptism um, throughout the known world, especially among Jews. And so Paul asks, don't know the Holy Spirit, what baptism did you receive? John's, they reply. And then Paul immediately explains to them that while repentance is great, there's something more beyond repentance for them. For as Paul says, even John, the baptizer of repentance, was pointing, pointing to Jesus. So the Ephesians go, cool, and they're baptized in Jesus' name. So if something, if something is incomplete or missing from this only the baptism of John 
in both stories, both Apollos and the Ephesians disciples, what is it? What is what is missing? You already know that, in my opinion, it's not salvation that's missing. These guys, in my opinion, they seem to be saved. So if it's not salvation, then what? What's missing? Two thoughts, and they're intimately related. See what you think. We'll take the second story first. What's missing in the story of the Ephesian disciples? First, in a word, actually three words, is it the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit seems to be somehow missing, doesn't he, from these Ephesians and their baptism of John only? And now someone might say, wait a minute, teacher, I thought you said that these Ephesians were Christians. You can't be a Christian, can you, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? How can the Spirit be missing if they're already believers? Those are good questions, and I agree that when someone accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, that complete package, if you will, includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But remember with me months ago, if you were here, way back when we were in Acts 2, story of Pentecost, you might remember... Way back in Acts 2, we talked about something called the Pentecostal package in Acts. Do you remember? We saw how in Acts, three things repeatedly appear very close together for new believers. Belief, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. That's what some theologians at least call the Pentecostal package in Acts. Belief, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing, however, in Acts is that the order of those three things is often mixed around. God works in mysterious ways, I guess. They're not always in that order. And perhaps even more important for our study this morning, the timing of those three things is not always instantaneous. In short, in my opinion, that's probably what's going on here with the Ephesian disciples. There are a group of believers who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Maybe kind of like the disciples of Jesus, who for sure were believers, but they needed to wait a bit for Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit. Remember? There was a delay there, maybe here too. Now, if that's nevertheless too troubling for us, pushes against some theology that we hold dear, then perhaps this possibility is something to consider. Perhaps these Ephesian disciples have indeed received the Holy Spirit right at the instant they believed, but for some crazy reason, they don't even know it. Or for some reason, the power of that Holy Spirit is not yet fully evident in their lives. Under this scenario, then, when the Holy Spirit came on them in verse 6, it wasn't the first time, but it was the first time maybe that they had a clue about it. They were aware about it or more fully experienced Him. But either way, in any event, one way or another, perhaps we can all agree that in some sense, at least, the Holy Spirit seems to be missing somehow in the lives of these Ephesians when Paul shows up in Ephesus that day. So what's missing here, given the only baptism of John understanding and experience, the Holy Spirit seems to be missing somehow. Second, what else is missing? I've already hinted at it. How about their witness? Is their witness at all obvious? 
Interesting, isn't it, that Paul, right out of the box, asked them this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a rather odd first question, isn't it? You suppose Paul asked this question because Paul couldn't quite tell for sure whether the Holy Spirit was in and among them? Maybe something about them, something they said or they didn't say, something they were doing or they weren't doing, something about when they were saying what their lives were like now as believers. And they talk, Does something like that make Paul want to peer inside them and yell, Hello, Holy Spirit, are you in there? So perhaps at least the, the second thing missing or another thing missing for the Ephesian disciples is their witness. And not just any witness, but a witness that clearly and beautifully shows the power and the passion and the spiritual gifts that only the Holy Spirit can bring. What about us? Are we repentant believers, repentant believers who have changed their minds turned from sin, turned toward God, but still lack somehow the Holy Spirit? Either entirely, or if your theology prefers, we, we have the Holy Spirit, but we are missing out on the, on the full expression of His power and influence. And even if we're not as, as ignorant or naive as the Ephesian disciples, because we have, we have heard of the Holy Spirit at least, are we nevertheless in the same boat with them because we haven't yet fully received or, or fully tapped into this amazing presence and influence in our lives of God Himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit missing from your walk? And what about our witness? Would anyone listening, watching, experiencing us even while we're singing praise and worship music, be tempted to ask the question, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? Because they don't see startling evidence. Startling evidence? Shoot. They don't see any evidence, perhaps, of God's presence and gifting in His service and in loving service and humility before others in our lives? Is an obvious witness of that love and empowerment missing from your walk? And we might be tempted to say what I often call that great Dutch expression. I'm Dutch and I heard this expression growing up all the time. Yeah, but we might be tempted to say, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, but we repented. We're saved. We changed our minds, just like you said. We have turned from sin and turned toward God. We think differently about life. We know and recognize sin in our life. And we've turned from it. And we've turned toward God. We believe in Jesus. We're saved. We have decided. We have decided to follow Jesus. So what are you talking about? You know, and my response to that would be excellent. Praise God. Good for you. Good for God. That's awesome that you're saved and you have repented. But now what? 
We've decided, perhaps many of us, we've decided to follow Jesus, but are we Can anyone tell whether the Holy Spirit is in there or not? Are you missing the Holy Spirit and the powerful witness the Holy Spirit enables in your walk? Speaking of a powerful witness, what about Apollos? When he shows up in Ephesus, is the Holy Spirit and witness Missing in this story, too. Now, my opinion here is a bit more complex. See what you think. Here's my short answer. In my opinion, the Holy Spirit and powerful witness the Holy Spirit brings about is missing from Apollo's teaching, but they are not missing from the life and walk of this man. Yes, Apollo's teaching is incomplete. He needs to include that the wonderful teaching about the baptism in Jesus' name and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is packaged with such baptism and belief. And Priscilla and Aquila make sure he learns about it. But the Holy Spirit and powerful witness the Holy Spirit enables, missing from this man's life? Are you kidding me? His teaching is razor sharp. And it's dead on about Jesus. He comes all the way from Egypt, for heaven's sakes, to tell people about Jesus. He's an amazing Bible teacher. Hmm, teaching God's Word effectively is a key gift of the Holy Spirit. Probably just a coincidence. He has studied hard, knows God's Word. A more literal translation of the Greek here, I love this, is that Apollos is mighty in the Scriptures. Oh, may that be said of us. He's boldly teaching in the synagogue. And in Achaia, at least, he's arguing Jesus is Messiah. And then perhaps my favorite one, Apollos is fervent in spirit, the Greek says. This man is passionate about God and His Word and Jesus. And everyone can tell. No one is tempted to ask, is the Holy Spirit in you, Apollos? Missing an obvious witness? Are you kidding me? Paul says in Romans 12, verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And Apollos was. God says to Jeremiah, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. And in Apollos' mouth, they were. George Whitefield was a famous preacher known for his passionate preaching. Benjamin Franklin once said that the reason he would go regularly and hear Whitefield preach was because, Franklin said, there before my eyes I could watch a man burn. I love that. I'll bet Apollos, fervent in spirit, burned when he talked about Jesus In my opinion, Apollos is empowered by the Holy Spirit as evident in his fervent, accurate witness about Jesus. Maybe that explains why Priscilla and Aquila didn't drag Apollos off to be baptized. Did you notice? If Apollos, like the Ephesian elders, was lacking the spirit or witness, wouldn't baptism in Jesus' name 
be the obvious you know, next verse in the story, just like it was for the story of the Ephesians, especially given the context. But there's no mention of it. His teaching is corrected. Why? For the benefit of those who hear him that need the Holy Spirit and baptism in Jesus' name. Remember, it's not an essential. And then he's good to go, Apollo says. Even gets a letter of recommendation from the Ephesian believers. Hmm. Look, whatever the, the, the fully correct, non-essential theological conclusions are throughout these two stories, perhaps we can agree to take the following from this text in Scripture and message. First, brothers and sisters, our Christian walk should show whether like Apollos in his teaching or the Ephesians and their spiritual gifts, our faith should be an active faith. Our love of God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might ought to be obvious. And right there with it, by God's command, number one way it's obvious is our love for others, even those we call our enemies, ought to be obvious. Is it? Our faith should be out there. Obvious, explosive, burning. People should want to come see us and be around us just to watch us burn with the love of God and others. So burn, baby, burn. Others should feel the heat of God's power surge in and through us. There should be no question in the remotest regions of their minds that something supernatural is indeed carrying us, in us, empowering us. Our witness should show Second, if we lack that passion, and please, P.S., passion doesn't have to be loud, noisy, extroverted like I tend to be. I know quiet, reserved, godly people, they hardly ever make a peep. Peep. But boy, you know people, you look at them and you see it in their eyes or in their life and what they, there's a passion that smolders hot for God. If we lack that passion, if we're not on fire, would we pause, have the humility at least, the theological humility for some of us, to pause and consider the possibility that we're missing somehow the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? That we're missing out somehow, even if He's in there on the Holy Spirit? If you feel that you're missing out on the Holy Spirit, then pray, plead, beg God to use you and to give you the Holy Spirit and to use you in service to God and others. Call out for His presence in your life and witness. How badly do you want to be used of God? And third, if we lack that passion, if we're not on fire, if we haven't yet been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then I have one question. I'm sorry if this is rude. I don't mean to be, but I have a question for anyone in here who professes Jesus Christ as his Lord or her Lord and Savior, and you've not been baptized. I have a question for you. For the love of God, why not? We desperately want the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we just can't get around to being obedient to God's desire that we're baptized? Huh? Yes, I know baptism is not a requirement for salvation. 
But God commands it anyway. Be baptized, He says to His people. Well, I'm not sure I fully understand that yet. Who really does? I don't like to get up in front of people and What will the guys say? I'm too old now to be baptized. That'll be embarrassing. You know, let me tell you something. When an elderly person humbles themselves, not despite, but because of their experience and age and maturity in the Lord, and an elderly person comes forward and takes that step of getting into that water, have any idea the power and impact of that witness both in community who share in that joy and outside of community who see someone that has the humility and the guts and the passion to say, I may be 87! I'm not too old. Well, then I got to take that class the week before. We don't understand it. It's not the right time. It takes too much time. We're too, bu- too, we're too busy. Really? And then we go around wondering why isn't there more of the power of God in my life? Hello? How badly do you want God? Now, some attempts, I think, to put into a formula this mysterious, indwelling, exploding, burning power of the Holy Spirit, I agree, seem pretty hopeless. How do you put something like that in a box, even when labeled baptism? I agree with that. But I have to tell you, answer me this my father used to say. This mysterious, indwelling, exploding, burning power of the Holy Spirit happens all over the place in Scripture. And guess just what happens to almost always at least be included in these stories right next to these amazing power displays of the Holy Spirit. Guess what's like always right there? Baptism! Hmm. And if that's not enough for you, look at what Peter says in Acts 2. It's up on the screen. Look at what he says. He says, repent, change your mind, turn away from sin, turn toward God, and don't stop there. Phew! No. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you might, oh, I'm sorry, doesn't say might, And then you, tell me, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And some theologians at this point close their Bibles and stop reading. And they say, well, that's for that dispensation in time. That was for them. You can't say the you that Peter is. That was like a special time of empowerment. Try that. Well, keep reading. 
this promise is for you, okay, people of Acts 2, and your children, well, now it just got bigger, and then look how big it gets. And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Well, all means all, doesn't it? Hmm. So maybe, just maybe, if you believe, but you haven't yet been baptized, maybe you're just a baptism away from the Holy Spirit using you in even more powerful ways for God. So why not? Seriously, why not? Yes. Most of us, all of us at least, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, yes, we've repented. We've thought about our lives differently now. We've turned from sin and we've turned toward God. We've repented. We're saved. That's awesome. But now what? How about the Holy Spirit? How about an obvious burning witness? And toward those ends, how about Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. How about that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know better than all of us the debate that has come from these two stories and this mysterious question of Baptism and indwelling of the Holy Spirit and spiritual giftedness and and all of it. And Father, forgive us when we get so intellectually bogged down into even the non-essential details that perhaps, perhaps we miss the big picture point that you put on Luke's heart and mind when he wrote stories like these. Father, if we're missing out on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or a full expression of His power, Your power, in our lives and witness, would You give that to us today? I pray for an anointing, Father, of the Holy Spirit. With or without baptism, You can do it. We know You can. You have done it. Father, would You give us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, an obvious witness? Please. May no one ever ask of us individually or as a church. Have you guys received the Holy Spirit? May no one be tempted to ask that because our love of you with all our heart, soul, mind and might isn't obvious. May no one ever be tempted to ask that because our love of our neighbor as ourselves isn't plain for all to see. Oh, Father. Please give us what we need through the indwelling and powerful, amazing influence of the Holy Spirit to reach a world in your Son's name, a world that is desperate for Him. We love you, and we ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Burn, baby, burn. Amen. Go get them. Next week is Mother's Day. Don't forget. We'll see you then. 
We've got a child dedication that day. I'm looking forward to celebrating that day with you. God bless you. Have a good week.